Part 2 Chapter 4 I found this letter among Clotine's things in the summer of 2020. It's from Teresa, Clotine's oldest child, who was born in 1959. Clo was 19. It's dated 1984, so I was 14. Teresa would have only been 25 herself when she wrote it. Married with a six-year-old daughter and one-year-old son. In neat cursive, she writes, Dear Mother and M, Just a quick note before I go to bed. Been real busy today. Worked until lunch, then cleaned entire house. Made dinner, did dishes, made oatmeal cookies, then spent two to three hours at the sewing machine repairing the kids' clothes. Got some of the closets cleaned too. Got a big pile for the Goodwill. This apartment is too small for anything but the barest of essentials. Oh well. Sorry I haven't been up to date on my letter writing. Seems like I'm always busy even though there's not much to do. But never enough time to do what I want. Jennifer is doing real well in school. Did you know she was a munchkin in The Wizard of Oz at the Cambridge Theater of Performing Arts? I took her to try out because it's her favorite movie, and I thought it might be fun. She got the part and really enjoyed it. We are now all sick of The Wizard, and if I ever hear, ding dong, the witch is dead, again, I'll probably scream. She continues with updates about her kids and a recent family camping trip. Then she says... I gotta close. I'm too tired to write another word. Teresa, Bob, and the kids. Jennifer just got her school pictures taken, so as soon as I get them, I'll send one. P.S. Written in print and with a different pen. Sorry about condition of this letter. Brendan got a hold of it. His way of saying, hi. I held the letter in my hands and read it again. I've always thought Clotine's four older kids wanted nothing to do with her. But when I read the letter, I see that what her kids really wanted has always been a lot less definitive and more complicated than that. The inarguable fact, Clotine is the one who left them behind, not the other way around. Another fact, which probably seemed a lot more arguable at the time, she was too sick to seek help, too sick to have the insight that she might need help, and so she remained too sick to take care of them. So she abandoned them. By the time she returned to Ohio in 1979 with a nine-year-old daughter and an unexplained 15-year absence, they had learned to live without her. Yet they had not moved on totally, at least not Teresa. Otherwise, why would she write? The adults around them didn't attribute Clotine's behavior to schizophrenia or to any other mental illness. Her behavior was attributed to a character flaw called being nuts. If they were getting information about their mother from their dad, Eric, then here's how they understood their mom's decision. When Clotine voluntarily gave up the family home and full custody of the kids, they went to court to formalize the new arrangement. Eric insisted on a token child support payment from her of $5 a week. I have yet to see a single $5 bill, he told me. She just wanted to go live a different life. He waved his hand in dismissal of all that, as if waving a hand could wave away the memory. And even when her kids reached out, like Teresa did in this letter, Clotine was just too sick to see it, to acknowledge or respond. Whenever I saw them, which wasn't often, they kept their distance. I still remember the first time I met them back in 1979. 
My daydreams of warmly connecting with long-lost siblings never materialized. Unsurprising to me now as an adult, but as a nine-year-old, I was bitterly disappointed. A whole family had appeared, dad, siblings, cousins, an aunt and uncle, but they weren't the insta-family I'd assumed I would get. My half-siblings must have felt a lot of anger about their mom disappearing, but they had nowhere to direct it. Their father had a girlfriend by the time we moved back to Columbus. He'd moved on. They were left to contend with the stigma of mental illness, a stigma that wasn't just within our family, but was the widely accepted way to deal with mental illness in the early 1980s. They knew Chloe was not right, but they didn't ever utter the words schizophrenia or wonder, aloud at least, why she wasn't receiving treatment. They, in turn, would call her nuts as they reached adulthood, just like the adults around them did. I never overheard any conversation like this. If I had, it would have been helpful. It would have validated my own experience. But my half-sister Michelle told me about conversations she'd had with Clotine's other kids. She said they had talked about her delusions in a can-you-believe-this tone when they talked about her at all. I first met Michelle in 1998 when I was 28. She was 29, and she looked so much like Chloe that it freaked me out a little. She had the same long, lanky black hair that Chloe had on our Greyhound bus ride from Phoenix to Columbus. She laughed like Chloe Teen, and like me. When I first heard her laugh, I felt like I was in one of those movies where two strangers meet by chance on an airplane and realize they're sisters when they both pulled the same snack out of their purses or something like that. She's got the same round face, same nose, and nasolabial folds and thin lips. Clotine delivered Michelle in Columbus in February 1969, 14 months before I was born in Phoenix. Michelle was adopted as a newborn in a closed adoption in Ohio. Chloe moved to Phoenix two weeks later. Like me, Michelle has no idea who her biological father is. But after her adoptive parents died, she set her mind on fulfilling a lifelong wish to find Clotine. She hired a private investigator and soon got in touch. She met us all over the next few months. When she was with my mother's kids from Chloe's first marriage, they talked about what a nut Clotine was, how Clotine claimed to have called the FBI to leave a tip about Timothy McVeigh's plot to bomb the federal building in Oklahoma City, that Clotine said she used to live next door to Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, and so on. Once years later, I had a party at my house and Michelle was there. We could both overhear Clotine talking to someone she didn't know at the party. She was unspooling a delusion about meeting Osama bin Laden at a nursing home where she worked. Clotine never ranted or raved when she delivered her delusions. In fact, her delusions weren't stories she told. It was more like her delusions coded her conversation. She might drop a hint of a delusion into polite conversation. In this case, the stranger, not knowing anything about Clotine, started to ask more questions. When was this? And did you tell anyone else? Michelle began to laugh hysterically as she listened to their conversation. I rarely heard my mother laugh heartily, but when she did, she sounded just like Michelle.